0: The events of the last two months have been unprecedented. Across the country, millions of Americans are watching the news and they're asking two questions. How did we get here and where do we go? Today, I'm going to tackle both of those because while the answers to those questions won't determine if we have a country, they will determine how stable that country is. So if you're ready to start figuring out how to make this union more perfect, then let's begin. This is Smart Politics, and I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. As you may know by now, we like to take the scenic route on this show. So instead of jumping right in, let's talk a bit about New Year's first. New Year's is a jumbled up mess of different things at this point. It's thousands of years old, dating back roughly 4,000 years to ancient Babylon. But most civilizations throughout history had some way of celebrating the first day of the year. Though that day wasn't standard across cultures, that's because they were typically tied to agriculture or astronomy, as opposed to a unified calendar. It wasn't until Julius Caesar introduced the Julian calendar, which would eventually become the Gregorian calendar we use today, that January 1st was established as the official day, which is where it's more or less stayed ever since. Which fits because the Roman god Janus is not only the god of doors, gates, and new beginnings, but he's a two-faced god with one face looking backwards and one face looking forwards. Which is the point of New Year's, right? We look backwards, reflecting on what we've just been through, while also looking forwards and making a promise about the future. We resolve to do something better, something different, in the hopes that we might be able to improve ourselves our community, or maybe even our country. And that's what we're doing here on this show. This is a story in three parts. The recent past, the immediate past, and the future. All three are necessary to making sense of this moment we find ourselves in. Part one, Bush versus Gore. 20 years ago, we had a pretty contentious election. Bush versus Gore was hotly contested, with the two candidates ending up separated by fewer than 600,000 votes, or 0.5%. And the fate of the election ended up coming down to the electoral votes from Florida, where the two candidates were separated by only 600 votes. Of course, this was controversial, because the state was governed by Jeff Bush, the brother of George Bush. The decision to stop a statewide recount and effectively declared George Bush the winner, was made by the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision, with liberals and conservatives splitting along party lines. And with this decision, we entered an era of challenged elections. Democrats in the House did not agree with the outcome, and so despite there being no path to overturning the results, especially since Gore had already conceded, they objected to certifying the vote but were overruled by Gore serving in his role as vice president at the time. Four years later, they did the same thing again, only with the votes from Ohio. But this time, they had support from Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer from California. And so the Senate was forced to stop the process for two hours as they talked about the alleged voter suppression that had occurred in Ohio. And four years ago, in 2016, Democrats in the House did the same thing once again, objecting to certifying Donald Trump as the winner due to allegations of voter suppression and Russian interference. None of these challenges ended up going anywhere, and all three were dismissed as nothing more than political grandstanding, which is certainly one way to describe them, but maybe not the only way. It's worth repeating that there was no legitimate path to overturning the results of the election in any of these years. It was all about scoring political points at the expense of a smooth transition. But just because an action doesn't result in something bad doesn't mean it isn't reckless, because some doors should never be opened. What changed this time around was the President of the United States, Donald Trump, was not only leading the charge, but was actively fanning the flames. Part two the arrival of Trump. As both a candidate and now president, Trump has been violent, if not in action, then certainly in rhetoric. During his campaign, then-candidate Trump advocated killing the families of suspected terrorists, famously stated that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters, and less than one month later he told audience members at one of his rallies that he would pay their legal fees if they knocked the hell out of a protester. And of course, in October of that same year, the Access Hollywood tape came out, with Trump being shown on tape saying, I moved on her like a bitch, describing his attempts to have sex with a married woman, and more infamously, that he likes to grab them by the pussy. As president. He didn't relent. He encouraged police to rough up suspects after they had been arrested, defended white nationalists after they had murdered a woman in the streets of Charlottesville, and reportedly asked if we could shoot migrants in the legs in order to prevent them from coming. This is the person who was leading our country during a period where political tension and political rhetoric had already rocketed to dangerously unsafe levels. Many of his supporters will tell you that he's not serious or that he's trying to own the libs and maybe he is, but that doesn't matter. Reckless speech is reckless, no matter the consequences, remember? So if that's the standard and I believe it has to be, then the president of the United States more so than any other individual has to be held to it. The chaos that unfolded in Washington was the result of mixing a volatile agent into an unstable environment. What happened recently was predictable, and in fact, had been predicted by many people. On this very show, in one of our earliest episodes, I took a glance at a future where we hadn't solved our political divides. A future where a strong man emerged under the guise of a unifier, promising the moon and stars, but eventually bringing the country to its knees. That idea may have seemed absurd at the time, but does it seem so far-fetched now? Can you truly not imagine a world where that happens? I can. I already did. So what are the immediate steps we could take to begin walking back down the right path and away from where we are? Part three, what now? Earlier, I mentioned how we make resolutions or promises for New Year's, and most of those are of the disposable variety. A promise to lose a few pounds, save more money, or maybe ask out a crush. It would be nice to keep them, but if we don't, it's not a big deal. The stakes are low. But there's power in a promise made. No matter if it's one made to yourself or one made to others, promises are made to be kept. Even when you break one that nobody else ever knew about, there's that twinge of guilt, a hint of disappointment. And when you break one made to somebody else, it can feel awful. That's because we all grow up being told the importance of keeping your word. We mythologize honesty because even when someone is wrong, honesty is still the best policy. Lawmakers make a promise, too. It's called an oath and they swear one the moment they take office. The congressional oath of office is short, so short that I'm going to read the whole thing in its entirety right now. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me God. 73 words. That's it. 73 words dedicated to one idea, defending the Constitution. If you're wondering where to start, then maybe begin there we should expect and demand that our elected officials take their promises as serious as we take ours. A promise made to the entire country about something as serious as our founding document should carry at least as much weight as a promise made after six shots, two glasses of wine, and one very long night. But somewhere along this path, we've stopped believing that words matter only to find out now that nothing could matter more. Sticks and stones aren't more powerful because words can lead to violence or they can lead to peace. That's where we find ourselves right now, at this fork in the road. We are either going to have a country where elected officials respect our most sacred ideals or not. If we allow the foundations of our country to continue being treated as disposable, then we will one day have a country where they are disposed of. A country like the one I've already imagined. A country where traditions we hold dear vanish and where the rule of law is replaced with yet more anarchy. But if we can start holding elected officials accountable for the things they say and do, then we can start moving towards something better. And I don't mean this generally. I live in Indiana. I've lived here my entire life. Senator Mike Braun initially agreed to support this madness before he was faced with the reality of what he had signed on for. But by agreeing to support this in the first place, he has forfeited his right to hold any elected office. That holds true for any official who went along with this at any point there must be political consequences for encouraging insurrection. We, the voters, are the enforcement mechanism. We determine what we will and will not accept. And it's our responsibility to make sure the people who represent us do so in a way that we can be proud of. The path forward is treacherous. There are many areas where we can slip, fall, and end up Crashing to the bottom, but we must attempt it anyway. Not doing so will ensure that what happened earlier this month becomes a more permanent fixture of our politics. That's not a future I want to live in.